About 30 million Americans each year consult with therapists. Some clients view their therapists as storehouses of wisdom and as beacons of proper direction for their lives. Yet, as with all of us, therapists are fallible and often in need of outside wisdom and direction themselves. So where do they go? To therapists. Therapists and their therapists today on Watching America. On my life, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. There was a time when going to a therapist was quite a luxury. It seemed that only film stars, the likes of Woody Allen, could afford such an indulgence. But for decades, it has become quite routine for even those living on a modest income to seek guidance from such professionals. Yes, with a sliding scale based on income, or with a secured insurance deductible, Counselors and therapists are at the ready to lend assistance. But where do these licensed persons go when they need help for their own lives? I mean, doesn't everyone need therapy? Why would I spend the rest of my days unhappy? Why would I spend the rest of this year alone? When I can go therapy... When I can go therapy, when I can go therapy two times a day. Why would I spend the rest of my day so busy? And all that listening is making you bitter too. When I can go Welcome to Watching America. My guest is Laurie Gottlieb. She is a psychotherapist who started seeing a therapist herself five years ago. Laurie Gottlieb writes about this experience in her new book entitled, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Now, Gottlieb, I should say, uh, as a therapy uh, expert, has also been willing to put herself under the eyes and interpretation and the mind of somebody else. But that's part of the process. And some people don't realize that therapy is not always a, a joyride. It does have painful elements to it. And as she has stated, people expect to feel better when they leave. And sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. And sometimes you're going to talk about painful things, as she says, but only because it's going to make things easier for you in the long run. What a delight to have you here, Laurie. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I'm a big fan of some of your earlier work. You wrote an earlier book called Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. And the title, I I, I say respectfully, I, th I think misled some people because it, it made it sound like people were just supposed to, women in particular, were just supposed to settle for anybody. And that was not what you were saying at all in the book. What you were saying was that sometimes we can have unrealistic expectations when entering into a, re a relationship. And by these unrealistic expectations, actually rob ourselves of finding Mr. Right. And so it was a wonderful book. And I just wanted to just put a little caveat in there right now for people who are listening. Look up the book, Marry Him. It's absolutely great by Laurie Gottlieb. And I know women who have read it and have loved it. And uh, it's a great work, but not at all to be surpassed by her latest work. One of the things that I I'm, I'm, was quite fascinated about your life is that it, the, the diversification of prior experience. You worked in television, uh, you made your way out to Los Angeles and you worked on two premiering programs that would be juggernauts really for, for broadcasting. The first was ER, great hit, okay, George Clooney, right? And then the second one was Friends and you worked on both of these shows but you worked, worked in a capacity of uh, being an advisor of sorts. Can you tell us about that experience? So I was kind of a baby executive. I was the, the junior executive at NBC when I got there. I had been working in film before that and I was in my 20s. And when I got to NBC, 
both Friends and ER were premiering that year. And that was, of course, going to launch their their Thursday night dominance for years to come. Um, when I was, uh, when ER premiered, they wanted to make sure that they had an advisor on the show who was a physician to make sure that there was accuracy in terms of the storylines and to make sure that the trauma based scenes were choreographed properly. Um, and I would hang out in the ER with that consultant and I would hang out there a lot. And after a while, he said to me, you know, I think you like it better here than you do back at the office. And he was right. And he suggested that I apply to medical school. And I thought, well, I can't do that. You know, I'm in my late 20s now and uh, it's too late. And um, I wasn't a science major undergrad. I was a French literature major. Um, but I ended up applying to medical school and I went to medical school. I went up to Stanford. And when I got to Stanford, um, you know, it was the era of managed care and of just managed care beginning to come into the field. And a lot of my professors talked about how the reasons that I was in medical school, which is that I wanted to, I loved these, the deep, rich stories, real life stories that I saw in the ER, the, the real human dramas playing out as opposed to the fictional ones on the show. There was something so life-changing about seeing real life play out that way. Um, it can't help but make you think about your own life differently. And so when I went to medical school, I wanted to have these longer, more in-depth, um, you know, relationships with my patients that would last over a lifetime, kind of like the family doctor who guides people through their lives. And it just seemed like it wasn't going to be possible in the current medical model. And so I left to become a journalist where I felt like I could really, really tell people's stories, really get into their stories and tell them and share them. And it was years later when I, and I'm still a journalist, but it was years later when I had a baby and like many new mothers, I felt very isolated and I needed adults to talk to during the day. And the, the UPS guy would come and, and I'd say, how about those diapers and how's the weather? And, and I realized that, you know, he would back away to his big brown truck and didn't want to be talking to me. And I called up the dean at Stanford and I said, listen, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, I think that you're going to end up doing medication management or going through a lot of training that you won't need um, to do the kind of work that you want to do. You should get a graduate degree in clinical psychology, and then you can do the work that you want to do. And that's exactly what I did. It's very evident that you are incredibly interested in people as individuals and um, feel significance in helping and assisting them in any capacity that you can. So you genuinely are fascinated with uh, various personas, which is interesting because when you start to write your, your, your latest book, um, Maybe You Should See Someone is the title, uh, you have a description of five persons, the first of which is John, who's rather a narcissistic patient, uh, abrasive, to say the least, from the way you describe him. Then you have uh, a young woman called Charlotte, who's 25, and it kind of has issues with men, uh, offering herself to men with regret, not understanding why she's getting in the same relationships. Then you have another patient, Julie, who's 35 and dealing with a terminal disease and her eventual demise. Uh, and then you have uh, an elderly lady uh, called Rita, and she regrets a life as she sees it filled with wrong choices. But there's a fifth component, and the fifth component is Laurie herself. An extremely interesting book. One of the most fascinating uh, elements to it is how you peel back what it is like to be a psychotherapist. Now, I have uh, gone to three counselors at various times in my life for different issues. Unabashedly, without shame, I've had different experiences, and, and I'm very curious about your occupation and the experiences that you have had. First of all, in the training to be a psychotherapist, you have to, part of the cardinal primary thing of training is you have to go to uh, a mental health specialist yourself because you have to be able to identify and know what it feels like for your patients. But when you decided to do it out of self-motivation, Laurie, was there any deliberation that went on in your mind like, yes, no, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't, or any fear involved with how people would extrapolate or see what you were doing? It's interesting because when you're training, you go to therapy um, to learn more about what the experience is like. And most people who go into the field have probably been to therapy before because they have an interest in that. Um, 
But when you're going as an intern, you very much feel like the patient. You feel like an intern. But once you have your practice established and you've been doing it for years and then you go back, um, it's very hard to take off your therapy hat and just be a person in the room. And I think that for me, I was concerned about, interestingly, how people might perceive me if I needed to go to a therapist um, in the middle of this upheaval in my life that was going on. And I worried that people would be hesitant to refer to me um, in the same way. And I didn't necessarily want colleagues to know that this was going on, which is interesting because part of the reason I wrote this book and, and revealed myself so openly was that I want to reduce stigma around our emotional struggles. I want people to feel that they can talk about them without shame, without feeling like somebody's going to judge them. Well, what I find interesting uh, uh, about the process is you very clearly make uh, a delineation between emotional health and physical health, and we're inclined to want to acknowledge our physical health. No one would fault a doctor, even a general practitioner, for going to a specialist over any medical issue. And no one would say, oh, there's an indication of incompetency and uh, fraudulence. (laughs) But they are possibly, as you've indicated, inclined to do that when it comes to mental health. Why? I think there's this idea that the person that you're talking to, the therapist that you're talking to, should not uh, should should have all of their struggles, um, you know, re- in the past resolved, which is just not realistic because the nature of life is that we struggle. Everybody struggles. Nobody's immune from it. And so, of course, your therapist is going to struggle with the daily problems of living just like anybody else. But I think that somehow it makes us feel unsafe or that the person, you know, can't really help us if they're also going through struggles in their own life. Um Which is strange because, you know, when you think about, I I think people feel that way about their own mental health, too. When you think about the difference you were saying between physical well-being and emotional well-being, so many people, if they are having, say, you know, something feels off in their body, they will go and get it checked out before they have a massive heart attack. (laughs) But I think in, in what happens is if we feel like something's off emotionally, we say, oh, well, I have a roof over my head and food on the table. So, you know, whatever my problem is, it doesn't really matter. And then they don't go and get it checked out until they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack. Now, I'm curious, Laurie, about your predicament, because uh, having essentially the same training, although there are different schools of thought in relation to psychotherapy, having essentially the basic same training as the person that you were willing to, um, and I mean this in the best sense of the word, subjugate yourself to, uh, was there ever moments of wry smiles that came across your face when you thought to yourself, I know precisely why you're asking that? Oh, absolutely. I write about that. And maybe you should talk to someone in the very first session um, when he asked me for this, you know, this history of, of relationships. And he said, you know, have, have your other relationships ended this way? <laughs> and I knew what he was asking. I knew why he wanted to know that. Um, and I think also, you know, I was very much like my own patients. I think it's very natural to want to present yourself well when you first meet your therapist, even though really the way that they can help you is if you present the truth of who you are and not the performative version of who you are. This isn't the Instagram, Facebook version of you. This is this is really what's going on in your life. And so, um, you know, I think that there's a tendency for people to work at cross purposes with their therapist in the beginning, which is to present kind of a, a front almost. And then, you know, as they get to know the therapist, they start to reveal more and they feel more comfortable revealing more about themselves. Well, in your book, you address something um, which is basically people go to a counselor and they want to be liked. Uh, it's not always that they want to, you know, uh, risk showing their, their warts. They want to be liked. They work almost avidly. And uh, I mean, I've gone through this, too. I've, I've, I've shared that at the outset, that I've three times in my life I've gone for counseling to gain perspective, really. And I'm very conscious of the fact that the first few sessions are, you know, the presented issue versus the real issue. And then one also wants to be liked and, you know, well, I'm actually a nice person. And and you kind of subconsciously, at least avidly, are working at that. Um, Did you do the same thing with your counselor? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, there would be this woman who sometimes would come early for her appointment, which followed mine. And I would sometimes see her in the waiting room as I was leaving. And I would think, oh, you know, I'll bet, I wonder if he likes her sessions more than mine, or, you know, maybe he dreads my sessions, or she must be so nice to see after me. Um, you know, I think that we all we all wonder about that. And that's one of the things I tried to do, and maybe you should talk to someone, which is I wanted people to understand more about what is the therapist thinking or feeling? Um, because I think people have so many misconceptions, you know, that the therapist doesn't like them or that they're boring their therapist. And I wanted them to understand the intricacies of this very rich human relationship that happens in that room. You have four patients, a fifth being yourself uh, in the book. Let's go by them, if we may, one by one. John, the narcissist, not a very, at least initially, though it is amended later and revealed, not a very charming personality. How did you contend with him? You know, when he first comes to me, it's very hard to like him. But the ways that he's acting, I know, are a way of protection. The ways that we behave in the world are how we cope with something that is so painful that we can't face it, and so it comes out behaviorally. So he's very insulting to me. He's very abrasive. He he makes jokes at my expense. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what I want to know about him when I first meet him is, what is he covering? What, what is he using this behavior to cover up that he can't face right now? And so... He starts off as I think, you know, readers really don't like him at the beginning in the way that I felt, which was I find him extremely hard to like. But as I got to know him and once I understood what this was about and, and it was completely unexpected and I don't want to spoil anything, but it was it was really, really, uh, you know, tragic. Um I, I I came to really develop a deep affection for him and and genuinely liked him. And I think the readers do too. They all say, you know, we, we just wanted to hug him. And I think, you know, so I think that, that I wanted to show him because I think that the ways that people present are manifestations of something deeper going on. There's one key word, Laurie, that I noticed in your work, uh, both in observing uh, interviews and reading interviews you've done and, and watching them and reading your book. You incite the word compassion a lot. Compassion is primary with you. You exude that. Uh, that That's a key theme. Are you conscious of how often you use the word compassion? Uh, I, I wasn't, um, but I think I must write about it a lot because it is important to me. And, and it doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have ungenerous thoughts. <laughs> you know, we all do. Um, I, I write in the book, too, about a patient that I can't help who is very, you know, and I end up ending treatment with her because I can't get in there with her after, you know, numerous consultations with colleagues and trying everything that I possibly can. I, I failed her. I could not figure out how to reach her. I think that somebody else may have been able to find a way in, in a way that I didn't. You couldn't have failed her and cared so much. You weren't successful in getting in, admittedly. Not to have cared would have been to fail her. Mm. That's, a, that's a lovely way of looking at it. Um, you know, I think all therapists have that experience where we care about a patient and maybe the work isn't going the way that we hope. And so I write about that as well because I wanted people to see not only the the really beautiful transformative experiences that several of the patients go through, but also what happens when someone doesn't seem ready to do the kind of work that is going to move them forward and how the process gets stuck. Mm. Mm. Well, you have a revelation with John, which I'm not going to go into because I want people to read the fabulous book. But then we have our second personality, Charlotte, who's 25, who um, finds herself in a habitual cycle, it seems, of offering herself to men, hoping for certain facets of nourishment emotionally from men, and finding that she doesn't get them. How did you um, work with Charlotte, and what was the appeal of writing about her specifically? I think Charlotte's a great example of the ways that we all have blind spots, and sometimes we end up shooting ourselves in the foot over and over and ending up in the same place and not understanding why. So in her case, she kept hooking up with 
guys who were going to disappoint her. And she really wanted somebody who would show up and be in a relationship with her and be reliable. Um, she even at one point starts dating a guy from the waiting room and she says, well, you know, at least he's in therapy. She thinks this is a step up <laughs> yeah. and, and it's not. Um, and ultimately, of course, it's almost like she has radar for the guys who are going to disappoint her. And in fact, this guy ends up coming to therapy with his girlfriend. <laughs> um, I hope they weren't in the waiting room at the same time, I hope. They they were. Um, as you know, so, I, so I write about that awkward encounter in the book where we don't know who it is because I can't ask my colleague anything about him because of confidentiality. So, you know, is she the sister? Is she a friend? Is she the girlfriend? And we pretty much conclude that she's the girlfriend who comes sometimes and doesn't come other times. Um, but, you know, the thing with her is that we all have patterns that are pulling the strings, right? There, there's something running in the background, a program running in the background that's dictating the choices and decisions that we make. And we don't even realize that program is running in the background. And she had this program running in the background that kept pointing her in the direction of unreliable partners. And until she could see what was going on and make those changes, um, she was going to keep ending up with the same kinds of people. And at the same time, she had something else going on, which was that she was drinking too much. And she didn't realize that she had an alcohol addiction because she was so functional. She was very successful at her job. She had lots of friends. Um, you know, she, she, didn't, she just thought she was socially drinking, but it was not social drinking. And as more and more came out, you know, we say the standard therapeutic calculation when somebody seems defensive about their 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 alcohol use is, um, you know, double it, <laughs> which is which ended up being pretty accurate. Um, so so she had a lot going on that that was hard for her to to deal with, and also to understand that there was something that she was doing that needed to change. It wasn't that you know there are no good men in the world, or you know, it, it was that she actually had some issues that she needed to look at more more closely and and then make changes because we always say that insight is the booby prize of therapy that you can have all the insight in the world but if you don't make changes between sessions out in the world the insight is useless so she might understand why she was going after these guys but if she didn't then make different choices out in the world it didn't really matter that she understood she actually had to do something different as well your third patient is julie who is 35 and um, regrettably I, I more accurately would have to say was 35. She had a terminal illness which you had to address and you have a very interesting chapter um, which I found uh, very insightful called What Not to Say to a Dying Person and it addresses your experience dealing with, with Julie and there is a proclivity for most people to want to give reassurance and to say, well, you know, there's, there's something to be gleaned from this and that and the other and to cajole and help persons when we're really denying them the, the legitimate license to feel what they feel and to um, respect their perspective, which certainly isn't ours because we're not in their body. Uh, Julie was extremely significant in your book. Would you like to share a little bit about Julie? So Julie was this young woman who had just gotten back from her honeymoon and was suddenly out of the blue diagnosed with this terminal illness. And she came to me and they didn't know how long she had to live. So, you know, there was there was talk of, you know, well, maybe it'll be a year, maybe five years, maybe 10 years. And of course, there's an enormous difference between a year and 10 years. And she came to me to kind of figure out how to spend whatever time that she had. Um and I didn't have a lot of experience with that. And she said to me, will you stay with me until I die? And I, I, it was a profound experience. Um, I told her that I didn't have a lot of experience with that. And that was precisely why she wanted to come to me. She wanted to um, talk to somebody who, who wasn't going to kind of give her the party lines. And there is this chapter in the book called What Not to Say to a Dying Person, because at a certain point, she realizes that everybody is trying to make her feel better, but they make her feel worse. They'll say things like, have you gotten a second opinion? Right. <laughs> As if she that hadn't occurred to her. Um, or, you know, my cousin had the same thing you have, but took this treatment. And, you know, just all these things that were just not helpful. They couldn't, they tried to cheer her up. They tried to um, deny death completely. Right. Right. And she wanted what would feel good to her, what would not good, but would, what would feel comforting to her was to know that people could sit with her in her pain. 
Mm. that or in her experience, um, which included joy, by the way. So, you know, could they could they sit with her in the joyful moments? And also, could they acknowledge the reality of what was happening to her? Um, so what would happen in the therapy room was we would acknowledge, we would look death in the eye and we would acknowledge what was happening. And also we would look at her, we would look at how to live at the same time we were looking at how to die. And we could hold both of those realities together in the same conversation in a way that made it much easier for her to grapple with them. How did the experience cause you to look at yourself uh, and all of our own potential uh, mortality? I think that when you are forced to look at death in the eye the way that Julie made me, um, and I say made me, meaning it was it was the only way we could do the work together. Um, I was actually going through, as I write in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, I was writing about there were there was a health issue going on with me too that I wasn't willing to look at. Um, and it made me really deal with it. It made me really deal with the uncertainty that I think a lot of medical issues make us look at, which is, you know, doctors don't know everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they do their best, but we, we don't always know the outcome. We don't always know why something is happening. And um, it really made me face some things in my own life at midlife where your mortality becomes heightened because now all of a sudden, you know, you realize, oh, wait, I don't have all the time in the world. Even if even if I'm not in Julie's situation, mm-hmm. I, I don't have all the time in the world. And how am I spending that time? And can I be more intentional about what I want to do with my days? Do I, you know, what am I wasting my time on? Where do I not need to put emotional or physical energy Um how can I be more aware of the time that I have? We shall move to now your fourth patient, Rita. She, at the time you were working with her, was 69 years of age. She was besotted with sadness at the realization, at least as she saw it, that her life had just been one litany, one series of bad choices after another. And she was, at the same time, desiring perhaps a relationship, but very, very negative about the possibility of that occurring. Tell us about your experience, please, with Rita. What's interesting about Rita is that she's about to turn 70. And unlike Charlotte, who's the woman in her 20s who is having trouble in relationships as well, and by the way, they're both on the dating apps, you know, so they're like at different times in their life Mm. trying to find connection. Um, Charlotte had this vast vista of time ahead of her to make better choices. Rita, on the other hand, had made lots of choices that she regretted. Her adult children wouldn't talk to her. They were estranged from her because of significant uh, mistakes that she made as a parent for which they did not forgive her. Um, She had had some marriages behind her and she was extremely isolated, one of the most isolated people I had ever encountered. And, you know, she said, if things don't change in a year, I don't want to live anymore. And that might sound like a lot of pressure, but at the same time, I wasn't focused on that so much because, first of all, she wasn't going to do anything at that moment. So in terms of suicide assessment, she she was clearly going to wait the year out. Um, but also, I wanted to learn more about her and understand this you know, how she had gotten into this place in the in the first place. So I always say that I'm listening to the music under the lyrics when somebody comes in. So here were the lyrics. Here's the story of what she presents to me. But what's the music under that? What's the underlying struggle or pattern that led her to this place in her life? And she makes significant changes in her life. And they're a hard one, and it's not all wrapped up in a bow uh, by the end of the book. But I think that it shows that it's never too late to change when you're ready to do that. I want to tell you how impressed I was with an an exhibited attitude you have towards your patients. You said at one point, and I'm paraphrasing, that you scan for the strengths as well as for what is not working. And I do think that that's not always the case. But it is with you. You're looking for, and I, I don't know if that's the same thing as you were alluding to, like looking for the music, but you're looking for the strengths as well as the things that need to be amended. I find that terribly hopeful and respectful. Well, when people come in, 
I want to know not just why are you here, but I want to know why now, why this week, this month, this year, did you pick up the phone and make that call when maybe, like in Rita's case, the problem had been going on for decades, right? Um, because I think that is a strength, the fact that they called. So I'm, I'm, I'm scanning for strengths. One strength is readiness. How ready are you to do something different in your life? And I think just by virtue of picking up the phone and coming in, there's some, whether they realize it or not, there's some readiness there that they know that something has to change. Now, often people will come in and say the people in my life have to change and that's what that's what they want to change. Change my partner, change my child, change my parent, change my boss, right? Mm-hmm. But what they come to realize is that there are changes that they can make too. So they can change how they respond to the difficult people in their lives or they can also realize that maybe they have a role in the problem and that they can make changes there as well. This is Watching America with host Dr. Alan Campbell. talking to Laurie Gottlieb, who is the author of a marvelous book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed is the subtitle. And because of a crisis, romantic crisis that uh, Laurie went through as a psychotherapist, she realized that she would, well, entertain the idea at least of going to a therapist herself. Now, there was some potential jeopardy in the eyes of others, uh, both patients and colleagues, how they would view her for doing such a thing. But it proved to be very profitable, both for uh, herself in her own development and also in her practice and ultimately for all of us who can access her book. Again, maybe you should talk to someone. Going back to Rita, uh, Laurie, there's a very sweet incident uh, or, well, pithy incident, incident when speaking to Rita she has confessed and acknowledged all these areas where she feels she has failed her children and failed herself and what have you. And you bring up the issue of punishment and the idea of sentencing in which she indicates basically that she feels she deserves a life sentence for what she has done of unhappiness. Yeah. So there's a, there's a word uh, for people who are afraid of happiness or feel like they don't want to experience it. Um, And it's called cherophobia. So chero meaning joy and phobia, of course, meaning fear. And Rita was one of these people who felt that because she had so, you know, made such regrettable mistakes with her children that she did not deserve any happiness in her life. That even though this had happened, and they were, you know, so it's, it's this interesting thing, I think, morally and ethically, because, you know, she, she really did uh, make these huge mistakes as a parent that were significant and impacted her children's lives and, and their adulthoods as they were playing out. But at the same time, she realized that she made these mistakes and felt deep regret around them. And while I don't think that her children needed to forgive her, and I write a lot about forced forgiveness in the book, that people want someone to forgive them, even though they don't need to forgive them. It's you have to forgive yourself or you have to come to a place of peace in your own self as opposed to expecting other people to give that to you, to exonerate you because her children did not want to ex- exonerate her. And and if she came begging for that, they were going to keep distancing themselves. Again, one of the key points you make within the book is this concept of forced forgiveness. You can't force one to prematurely get to a point of of. of desiring forgiveness or accepting forgiveness. It has to evolve naturally, as you indicate. Have you ever had struggles with the issue of forgiveness? I think that in treating Rita, it was really helpful because um, it's kind of like, I think for people who had difficult parents, that if you were to sit down in a room with someone and 
and and see and hear their side of the story, but it's not your own parents. So with Rita, in some ways, totally different from my own mother. But I also had a lot of questions about, you know, did my mother, you know, should I forgive my mother for certain things? Um, even though I don't really feel, I feel compassion for her, but I don't really feel forgiveness. And so many times in people's lives, they say, you need to forgive this person. Um, but I'm not sure why, for whose benefit. Um, sometimes it, it can be greatly helpful to people. They say, I felt a weight lifted off of me when I forgave so-and-so. But sometimes it, it, it feels inauthentic. And so with Rita, I felt like, oh, this was so interesting to hear. And again, her story is very different from that of my own mother. So my own mother was not at all, did, did not do any of the things to me that, that Rita did to her children. But, but just hearing Rita understand it from a different perspective. I wish that her kids could have heard that in the same way. Um, I wish that a lot of people could hear the nuances of, you know, how we often paint our parents or, or important people in our lives in a box. And we say they were this way, but there's so much more to the story. There's so much more to how they feel about what happened. I often will adopt the attitude that people don't know what they're doing when they do it. Cognizantly, they know what they're doing, but on another deeper level, they don't, because if they did, in most cases, they couldn't possibly do it. But I got that vantage point from thinking about um, Christ on the cross when he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. They know what they're doing, but they don't possibly understand what they're doing. And I've applied that to people in my life, and I maybe it's just you know happy, happy talk in my own brain, and I'm willing to accept that. Uh, but I have found that that gives me an entirely different perspective, that yes, people hurt us. They more than infringe. They intentionally plan to hurt us. But I also believe that deep down inside, they couldn't possibly know what they're doing if they realize the pain, even though they say they want to inflict the pain. There's a knowledge, but an unknowledge at the same time. Does that possibly make sense to you? It does. A lot of people... Um, you know, I don't think there's any parent out there, or, or very, the very rare parent out there. Most parents want to do the absolute best they can do for their kids. And sometimes that's an A, and sometimes that's an F. And, you know, most of the time it's somewhere in the middle. Um, B. Right, right. But but I think that, that you know, when parents are, are doing these things, they're doing it because of their own mental health issues they're they're you know they don't they're they're doing it in in self-preservation they're doing it because that's what they know how to do um if they knew the result of what they were doing how that would affect their child for years and years to come they probably wouldn't do it right um so so even though you could say well it's obvious if you do x to a child that they're going to be traumatized by that um it seems obvious but I think that it's such a complicated picture, and it's very, and I'm not, I'm not excusing that kind, you know, the you know abusive behavior. Right. I'm just saying that I think that it's very complicated. You said something very interesting. You said that the past informs the present, but the present also informs the future. What did you mean by that? I meant that I was talking in particularly about the breakup, but it it applies, I think, to almost anything, which is that if the present falls apart, right? Say you lose a spouse, or in my case, my boyfriend and I were supposed to get married and now we weren't. Um, you don't just lose the day-to-day -day with that person, you know, the you know, seeing them and, and talking to them during the day or just sharing your stories and, and being in bed with them at night. You don't just lose the present. You lose the future. You lose the entire future mm. that you had imagined with that person. Mm. So we think that we're just operating in the present, but everything we're doing in the present is in service of this is what my future is going to be like. And when the present collapses, so does the future. And so you're grieving not just the present, but also this future that now will no longer come to pass. You also say that we need to come to the place where we are comfortable with the unknown and the unknowable. What does that mean? There are so many things that we feel like if I just knew why, I would have closure, whatever that means. If I just knew why, I would feel better. And there's so many things in life about which we just never will know why. 
we just won't know. You know, senseless things that happen too. You know, why did that happen? Um, and sometimes we want to know someone's motivation and we might never know that person's motivation for making whatever decision they made. So I think that we sometimes need to get comfortable with the unknowing and the unknowable. There are certain things we just won't know. Um, in one uh, story in the book, there's there's something tragic that happens and the parent thinks that he's responsible for it, but he's not really sure if he's responsible for it and he'll never know. There's no way to know because of the way the incident went down. Um, and he, he has to live with the, the unknowability of, of the tragedy. And, and sometimes we have to make peace with that. Laurie, you talk about something uh, which I found extremely stimulating and, and in- interesting. You spoke about um, compassion, but you said, as we've alluded to, but you said also there's two forms of compassion. There's what you call idiot compassion and wise compassion. Now, that's quite uh, an interesting delineation there. Could you please explain the difference between idiot compassion and wise <laughs> compassion? Right. So idiot compassion is what we tend to do with our friends. Um, you know, when the breakup happened, you dodged a bullet. He was a jerk. You know, um, if someone says their partner did something or their boss did something, you're right. You were right. They were it's wrong. Reframing and redressing, right? It's, 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 it's backing them up. It's taking their side, but blindly so. Um, you know, we don't point out the fact that, you know, this is the ninth time this has happened to you with different people. So maybe you're the common denominator in this. We say, you're right. That's terrible that that happened to you. Um, that's idiot compassion. Wise compassion is what a therapist will do. Uh, incidentally, it's, who's the idiot? The one offering that, that advice or the one believing it? I think the kind of compassion is idiotic, right? Um, so it's mutual? It, it, it's about, it's, it's describing the compassion, not the people involved. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, and so... Wise compassion is is what we do in therapy, which is we hold up a mirror to someone and say, I want you to see your reflection in a way that you normally might not, and I want you to see your role in this situation. So when I go into therapy and I say what all of my friends were saying was, was you know, this guy, clearly he's missing some marbles if, you know, he's doing this at the 11th hour when we've been dating all these years and he's known I've had a kid all these years. He says he, he decided he can't live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years. And that kid is my eight-year-old who had not been hiding in the closet the entire time we were dating. And his kids were about to go to college and he realized that he... He did not want to be a parent for the next 10 years. And he had been grappling with that, but hadn't told me that he was grappling with that um, until now, you know, he had to because we were moving forward. And, um, you know, my therapist didn't have that reaction when I told him the story of, you're right, you know, you, you know, clearly it, it was it was a blessing in disguise that, uh, you know, this happened. Um, he said, you know, I'm curious about the fact that you didn't realize this. And I was furious <laughs> because I was there for validation. I was there because I wanted him sure. to take my side because that's what would have made me feel better in the moment. But in the long term, the best thing he could have done was to say, you know, he might have been avoiding having this conversation with you, but you were avoiding it too. Because there were so many examples, little micro moments where I thought, I don't really know if he's into this whole parenting thing, but then I would just ignore it because I thought, well, of course he is because he's with me and he has his own kids. And so of course he likes being a dad. I never addressed it with him. Um, And so I was as avoidant as he was. And it's interesting how we talk earlier about how John, the person who seems very unlikable at the beginning, becomes extremely likable. I present the boyfriend at the beginning as the villain, and as the book goes on, you realize, wait a minute, he's not really a villain. In fact, he's just a nice guy who was confused in the way that I was confused. And so you watch people go from whatever initial impression you have of them to becoming much more nuanced people, much more complicated and relatable and likable. Well, actually, that's a carryover from your theme from Marry Him as well, uh, in where you encourage women, to, you know, not to have this litmus test of, you know, uh, they have to be this, that, and the other one to be romantically even considered, because you make the point that once you get beyond these superficial exclusionary uh, requirements, that you actually may fall in love with the person and, and find them of value for far more than they ever anticipated. And conversely, the reverse can happen, as indicated um, by by this book as, as well, that people are are in a, a constant non-fixed state. They're, they're constantly in, in flux and in change, and we 
begin to appreciate different layers of them, you know, the social penetration thing and, and what have you. Let me ask you another question, if I may, and that's about the whole idea of systems changing. Um, my background, my doctorate is in communication, and there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a carryover from both fields of psychology and communication. Very often they, they intersynthesize with each other. And systems theory says that if you change a component, uh, you basically are changing the entire system. Now, for uh, friends listening, I just want to remind people back in the 1970s and 80s, we used to have these things called stereo components. So you had speakers and you had a receiver and you had a turntable and perhaps reel-to-reel and eight-track and cassette. If you changed any one element of those components, you changed the entire system. When somebody goes to counseling lorry, they're a threat because they're beginning to change, which means the carryover, as you know, to a family means that the system is changing because one component of that system is changing. Can you talk a little bit about that? A lot of people don't realize that when people make changes, particularly positive changes, the other people in their orbit sometimes get thrown off by this. So, for example, if somebody in a family, um, you know, uh, all of a sudden is going to the gym, you know, the people who are not going to the gym might be like, why are you doing that? You're, you know, you've become obsessed. Why are you going so much? Why are you exercising so much? Because they don't want to have to face the fact that now that this person is getting healthy, they might have to, you know, they're having a mirror held up to them, that they're not being healthy. And so if this person changes, then they have to see themselves differently. Another example of that is when somebody... Um, comes to therapy and they start to get better, that the other people in the family almost want to keep them as the problem in the family. You know, that that person has had the role, we call it the identified patient, that they've been the problem in the family the whole time, and that's their role. And now if the problem in the family is no longer a problem, all the other problems that were under the surface in the family um, have room to see the light of day. And now... And now other people are going to say, oh, wait, if, if that person isn't the problem anymore, I have to look at my own problems. So is it in essence a case of better the pain you know than the unfamiliar cure? I think it's about, um, you know, this homeostasis that, that if, the, if the system gets off because the problem in the system is now becoming healthy, it's going to have to rebalance. And that means that other people will have to look at their problems too because the problem doesn't just sit in this one place now. It's right. now, um, you know, and I think a people also, uh, you know, they see that with their friends too where your friend all of a sudden, you know, you don't want to come out and party with us anymore. You're no fun when the person is just being a responsible adult and getting to bed on time for work, that kind of thing. We started uh, at the outset talking about television programs that you were involved with, ER mainly, and Friends. Um, perhaps as we get closer to the conclusion, I may invoke two other television programs related to your work. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Laurie Gottlieb, who is the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. She's a psychotherapist who herself found reason to go and visit a psychotherapist and to the mutual benefit of herself and her patients learned an awful lot. Uh, talking about television, I loved the series Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. And there's a wonderful uh, excerpt where he goes to his therapist and Rob Reiner is there and they, they, they encounter each other outside. And they both whine about the catch-up, the catch-up lag time, uh, or lag time uh, when you go from one therapist to another. What's the best way to handle that? Because I've had that experience. I was living on the West Coast and I went to a counselor and then I came to the East Coast and went to a counselor and it's like, oh, geez, you know, you've got to fill them all in and you know that probably your first three sessions are going to be this, this catch-up time. As a professional, what's, what's your advocacy for people who find themselves in that predicament? I think that therapists aren't just listening to the content, but they're they're listening to... Um, you know, what what are some of the kind of themes in your life? Um, so yeah, you have to give them some content. And, you know, it's it's a process of getting to know somebody. You you can't have a relationship with somebody if you don't spend the time getting to know them. So you can't just say, um, you know, here's a, here's a, a one sheet on on my childhood, right? Yeah. Um, you know, here's here's the summary. Here are the cliffs notes. Um, you know, it's 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 how you talk about it. It's what you decide to share. Um, 
and and what are the themes that like why are you telling me this so often if somebody keeps going off on tangent after tangent I'm trying to figure out why are they telling me this? Are they distracting from the thing that they really need to be talking about? Or is there some theme that unites what they're talking about that I can help focus them on? To another television program, uh, Bob Newhart, and in his original series, he played um, obviously a uh, psychiatrist, but he reprised the role of sort in another sitcom. And there's a famous little skit called Stop It, which I'm sure you're aware of. Most people in the um, uh, psychotherapy um, realm of, of practice are familiar with it, where he repeatedly says to his patient, stop it. And she gives these lit- litany of things that she does. And he goes, well, stop it. Stop it. That's the advice. Stop it. Is there ever a time for you to be that blunt with a patient? Um. I think the spirit of it is true, meaning that at a certain point, if your patient is going in circles <laughs> and um, and they keep sort of talking about the same thing, you know, you, you have to say to them quite clearly, um, you keep doing the same thing over and over. And the thing is, people need to be ready to hear it. So you can say, stop it all you want. And I'm, I don't mean literally those words, but the spirit of that. And if the person isn't ready uh, they're not going to change their behavior. So what we like to do as therapists is we like to move things along more quickly by kind of floating something out there and just it's almost like planting the seeds so that something will be ready um, later on. You can't just like, you know, say the thing right out there that they might not be ready to hear. You can like kind of pepper things into the conversation that will help them so that they will get ready more quickly. What is the greatest thing that you've learned in the process of writing this book, dealing with these four personalities and the fifth, including yourself, that you would like to share that's hopeful and uh, insightful? I think one of the main themes of the book is that we grow in connection with others. And I think that in today's world, it's harder to have those kinds of connections because we're always being distracted by something that's pinging or dinging or vibrating or a screen on the wall or phone on the table. And I hope that the book helps people to think about the connections in their lives, connection to self and also connection to others um, so that they can be more intentional about that. I, I think that they will be happier if they uh, if they pay more attention to that. And I think the other theme of the book is that we're all more the same than we are different. And I really wanted to show that even though these these four people that I follow and then there's me as the fifth person, um, we might seem very different on the surface, but I think ultimately we grapple with the same universal issues. And I hope that that helps them to have more compassion for themselves and more compassion for other people as well. We've been speaking to Laurie Gottlieb, who is the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. I reckon so. It's a wonderful book subtitled A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. Thank you so very much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the conversation. Take care. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.